Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and USB Type-C connectors. We talk about those a lot. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 395. So yeah, this week we're going to talk about, we have two different topics for USB Type-C connectors. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about reverse polarity protection. Maybe we'll get to the Slack. Slack has a new GUI interface and why we don't like it. <laughs> um, and then maybe we get to the box truck. We didn't last week, but we'll see. We shall see. So what type C do you want to start with first, Stephen? Okay, let's go in order of what we already have. So USB type okay. C connectors that are power only are starting to hit the market. Yeah, so USB Type-C connectors, full-fledged, full-featured, we'll say. Type-C connect full flavor. Full flavor. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> Get that Spice Weasel connector. <laughs> you know, okay, so haven't these been around for a bit? Uh, maybe they haven't. Maybe I haven't been paying attention to it, because this is fairly new for USB-C, right? Yes, yeah. These are power-only, so full-flavored Spice Weasel USB Type-C connectors have 24 pins plus the shielding. And then shortly after those hit the market, we started getting like 12 pin ones, which were power and USB 2.0 only. And they got rid of like all the 3.0, 3.1 stuff. So these are literally power only. So they have VBUS, ground, and the CC1, CC2 pins. That's it. Six pins. Yep. So it's even more, more stripped down. In the past, we really didn't have power-only connectors for USB. We had power-only cables. Yep. Which, that was so annoying because half the time you, I shouldn't say half the time, you wouldn't know. Uh, a lot of times they weren't labeled. Yeah. So th this is like the exact opposite. The, the connector has just less pins in it. And then they have less pins, you know, that go to the PCB. So what's interesting about these connectors, because th these are new-ish. They've probably been on the market for a couple months now. I just found out about them through a, a Mauser marketing email. They're about the same price as a normal Type-C connector, which, at least in the volumes that you would buy through Mauser or DigiKey or something like that. Mm -hmm. But if you only need power over USB... You know, these are good options because one, it reduces, you know, how much pins you're soldering onto the board. So you have less labor. You also like can get away with because the problem with the type C, like the full fledged, the full flavor is the pitch on the, the connector is so tight. It kind of pushes you into like more specifications like you need tighter trace width, you need tighter stenciling, that kind of stuff. It's more difficult to manufacture, and it's a more of a pain in the butt if you have to rework it. Yes, because uh, half the connector, like the 24 pins, half the connectors are under the component, you know, under the connector, so you can't even inspect them without x-ray. So, yeah, it, there's a lot of problems with manufacturing Type-C, the full-flavored ones. Now, the 12-pin ones are a lot easier because all the pins come out through the back, mm -hmm. so you can inspect them all, but it still has kind of the same pitch width you know it just only has half the pins now these have basically double the amount of space between each pin now so you can get away with cheaper pcbs less labor for installing them less labor to inspect 
all that stuff. So if you just need power, and these handle like the 20 volt, five amp stuff, if you do the right negotiation over the uh, CC1, CC2 pins. So there's really, you know, if you just want power, you got it. I wonder, does this have beefier pins? Are they physically larger or is it just fewer at the same size? You mean inside the connector or outside or like on the PCB? On the PCB where they actually meet the pads. I think they're slightly bigger. Yeah. And I I wonder if because of that, they can make this slightly more robust because that would be really cool. But it doesn't look like they're saying anything about that. Literally, the data sheet is just USB Type-C as a feature, USB Type-C designed for power only applications, six pin. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is I haven't seen any of these that do the 45 volt, the power extended. What's it called? Like extended range. I think it's ERV, extended range voltage, or is it extended voltage range? Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter, but which is the 48 volt 5 amp. And I've only seen a couple connectors that handle that, let alone I haven't really seen any USB brick power supplies that really support it either. I don't, I don't even know if this connector is rated all the way up to the 5 amps because it is says the rated input current is 3 amps on this thing at 20 volts. There's the 5 amp one. Oh, they have a they have a different version of it. Yeah, yeah. So one of the projects that I think would be really cool, and I think this would be a really cool crowdsource one for the community, especially once we get the new community site up and running, which is I want to say like we're like two weeks away now. Technically it's working. Steven, you need to accept the invite. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was doing that the other day and I didn't get all the way to the end and got pulled away onto something else. So you're right. I do need to <laughs> accept that invite just so that we can start test driving stuff and seeing what features we want to add. But I think this would be a cool first project for the community on that site. Basically, it's a, what if we built a front end device? I I think we, I've talked about this before, but I'm putting out that it's actually a project now. It's, It's a front end device that goes on your lab power supply that you plug it into your lab power supply and then you plug a USB cable into the back of your, of your lab power supply. And so it can talk over Skippy to your your lab power supply and negotiate the power supply part for USB Type-C power delivery. And so you'd have like a power delivery chip on there that's man basically goes, oh, I need to output 15.2 volts at whatever amperage. And it talks to the lab power supply to set that up for it. And then it does a pass-through to a USB Type-C connector. I think that'd be a really cool product in terms of like like use case for like testing USB Type-C devices, especially if we did some like debugging, like maybe we put a little screen on it that says like your device is trying to negotiate this. Do you accept or maybe something like that or just shows the specs. I really like giving feedback as to what it's trying to do. Yes. Yeah because yeah i could see that i could see that being really frustrating being in the dark and just questioning like i don't know what is it actually doing anything yeah yeah so maybe it'll have like maybe it has two usb outputs one's like serial terminal and the other one's talking skippy over it so yeah and i think we can do the skippy over usb through like an ftdi com port style because it's just a com port well we gotta do like a host side of it so that's gonna be the interesting thing because like the the power supply itself is the uh, device, 
the COM port device. Right. So we have to figure out how to make that work. The easiest solution might be like you really run like a Raspberry Pi. I'd rather not. I'd rather it be like an embedded project. Yeah, a self-contained thing would be better. Yeah. So we have to figure out how do you do like a USB host. I think there's some microcontrollers out there that can do it. So we have to play around with that. But I think this would be a cool project. Let us know what we should call it. Uh, Arduino has a USB host shield. Interesting. I think there's some like native Arduinos that do it too. I think so as well. They have USB hosts. Yeah, I think you can. I've seen that before. Yeah, I've seen it before too. So yeah. Oh, can't the can't the Mega? I swear the Mega had that capability at one point in time. I don't think the Mega can. I think the Dewey, which is the other Mega, can. I think that can do it. I'm seeing that right now. Yeah, the Dewey can. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a. I'm looking at the library for it right now. So, but I thought the Mega could. Maybe it was just that the Mega could emulate uh, a keyboard. Maybe that's what I was thinking. Could. Never tried that with a Mega. Hmm. Anyways, so yeah. I think that's going to be our first project. And we'll use one of these USB type C connector, you know, six pinners and um, go for there. So we need a microcontroller that can host the USB connection from whatever power supply you're talking to. So it's going to be skippy. So it's literally a serial connection over USB. So it doesn't have to be super fancy. Then we need that microcontroller needs to be able to talk to a USB type C power delivery interface chip basically the the actual low level chip for that and then all the power supply circuitry around that so like there needs to be like a FET that basically doesn't allow any power i think we have to allow like five volts at connection and so we'll have to figure out like when you plug it in the first thing it does is you know you turn on your power supply and it tells it to hey turn on five volts that kind of thing we have to figure that out because each power supply is going to be different on what features it has. So it might be you have to plug this device in, you turn on 5 volts, turn it on, and that powers up the device, basically. And then it will start the negotiation. So it's also going to have to sample the line, that what's coming out of the uh, power supply to see what it is. <laughs> yeah. It'd be an interesting project to basically build in a super flexible power delivery circuit on the front end of a lab power supply that's never designed for it. Yeah, you're interfacing with the front and the back end of the power supply. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it sounds like there's going to be... Mm, one of the things I'm not liking about that is just that there's like a sequence rule that you, the user, have to know, right? You have to set the power supply to 5 volts and then turn it on, and then it does its magic. You don't have to, because we can set it up to where it has like a, a buck boost on it. So you could plug it in, turn it on, and it as long as it's over whatever threshold that that power supply needs on the board, it can go, hey, we're not at five volts. Go and turn on five volts over Skippy. That'll be the way to do it. Yeah. So it can handle basically anything that the power supply can handle at output. So it'd be like, what, up to 30 volts is what most of them go up to? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. So like, make sure that your power supply can handle 1.2 volts to 30 volts. <laughs> and then that outputs... <laughs> Yeah. That outputs your five volt rail <laughs> on your board. <laughs> That's gonna be a fun supply to design. TI Webbench. <laughs> <laughs> Just put your faith in in Webbench. It's never steered me wrong. Not yet. <laughs> that's such a huge range, though. <laughs> yeah, that's that's big. The good thing is it doesn't have to be a lot of current. 
Because we're only powering our little embedded system. Well, and you're we're trying to hit that kind of range without a transformer with just whatever inductor web bench craps out, right? Yeah, yeah. Whatever eight dollar inductor is probably going to spec. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is WebBench gone? I was just going there to see if I could crap out something. Is it? No way. Uh, and well, I, it might not be a browser-based thing anymore. It might be... What? Oh, wait, no. Okay. TI changed their website a little bit. You just There's a few more clicks you have to go to to get to it. Because like, you used to be able to just go to Google, type in TI WebBench, and then you go, you're right in the designer. Now you have to go to like the WebBench landing page and then go to the designer. Oh. Wait, they have... Maybe... I don't remember this. They have an AC to DC designer now. I thought TI WebBench was only doing DC DC designs. You're right. So it must be new. Yeah. All right. Two to 30 volts and we want five volt output. What's the max current we would dump out of this thing? An amp? This supply is like going to be like 100 milliamps. Let's call it 250 milliamps just to give it some more juice. Because we're not powering anything off uh, of it. Well, it did come out with something. It has one matching design that can do three to <laughs> thirty volts. Sign. Yeah, three to thirty volts, five volt output at a uh, two hundred and fifty milliamp load. It is a two megahertz IC that can handle two to thirty six volts actually, so it can actually span slightly more. <laughs> and there we go. A bomb cost of two dollars and seventy eight cents. In it never costs that cheap. Well, no, that's that's like quantity thousand. Yeah, it, no, it still doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I've that's never had that, that. If that's the one gripe I have with TI WebBench, is that bomb cost calculator is never correct. Okay, so here's the thing. Let me let me redo this calculation real quick. Two to thirty, five volt out. But let's do something. Let's make it really a little bit more tough. Let's say twenty milliamps on that. So it's a oh. really light load with a huge input range, right? Yeah, because that's it's it's going to be more like closer to that than two fifty. Oh, for sure. I think it's going to be, we'll probably be pulling like 80 to 120 range. So, okay. So it's basically spitting out the exact same design. There was one matching design. So it's saying yeah. this is it. And it's estimating at a 20 milliamp load, you're only getting a 50% efficiency. It's okay. Which is kind of garbage. We have a big lab power supply on the back end. Right. Efficiency doesn't matter. We have a, um, there's a kind of a pool going on at work right now because we have multiple people whose boards all hit at the same time. All, all their designs are landing at the same time. So it's who is going to end up with the best efficiency on their switch modes. Because I think we have four or five switch modes mm -hmm. that are being evaluated right now. And, and it's cool because they're all not nowhere near the same. They're all vastly different. Different topologies, different blah, blah, blah. So who's going to hit, you know, close to 90 or over it? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I think right now with with the adjustments people are doing, I think somebody's in the low 80s to mid 80s. So like the efficiency every day starts creeping up on everyone's <laughs> supplies. It's great. <laughs> and then you got to start bombarding it with radiation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 doing that right now. And, and it's it's quite fun. <laughs> uh, it's it's funny it's funny because like the engineers will, will come out and be like oh I got my, my supplies working like this it's doing this I'm like okay great now it's got to do that over temperature and radiation like oh <laughs> <laughs> so 
Same design, two to 30 volts, five volt output, 100 milliamps closer to what you were saying. That one design seems to be it. Yeah, yeah. So it's got that. Then we'll have an output set that I can turn off and on. We'll probably need a way to look at the current that's coming off of it because this device is going to be pulling current off the power supply. So we probably want to put our own, you know, analog converter on it so we can like read the what's current out of it. Yeah, because it's going to be pulling, you know, probably 120 to ish milliamps. So that the the display on your lab power supply is going to be incorrect. Yeah, that should be doable. Yeah. I don't see anything totally wrong with that. <laughs> now, whether or not a lot of people find it useful or not, that's a different story. Yeah, uh, that's for sure the whole thing where it's like, do you really need this? We should try it, though. We should at least design it and build one, see if it works. Yeah, it'd be fun. We'll see if anyone else in the community wants to be in on it, too. Is Skippy, so you've used it, well, mm -hmm. infinitely more than I have because I haven't used it, but... uh is Skippy universal? Like, in other words, could you plug this into any power supply or would you have to change things? It's like 90 for lab power supplies. It's like 90% the same. And what we could do is also add in because there, there's an identify command, which is like put in headers with different commands, basically like, oh, you sent the identify command and you got this back. So it's going to be this set of commands that will work. Right. Or this format. Right. The formatting is very similar. There's some slight tweaks you might need to do, but I think we could program in most of them like just automatically because mm -hmm. the power supply will tell you what it is with the same command across every brand. Right. The identifier is not going to be unique. Correct. The, well, the command to give me the identifier is not going to be unique. Correct. Correct. So it sounds like fun. Yeah. Okay. The next Type-C is about Apple, everyone's favorite company on this podcast. <laughs> we always have nice things to say about them. Oh, yeah. So Apple is finally moving to USB Type-C. Are there downsides? Question mark. So this is off the heels of Europe, the EU, putting in legislation saying that all phones need to have USB Type-C connectivity. And so... Yeah, that legislation was called the Common Charger Directive, which was passed on October 24th, 2022. And it states that by 2024, a variety of electronics, including mobile phones, will be required to charge via USB Type-C. So not a lot of time left. And when, when it says a variety of electronics, it actually is a pretty wide swath of electronics. But... The big one is just, you know, mobile phones. It's knocking, it's hitting them the most. And out of all of that, it's hitting Apple the most because Apple is the most unique out of that. Most other brands had already switched over to USB-C for quite a while. Yeah, quite a while at that point. In fact, I saw the other day on YouTube, it might have even been Hulu or something. I think Google, Google Pixel has a television commercial that is mocking Apple about this transition where it's you know two phones talking to each other one of the phones is saying oh you're finally making it to usb type c kind of thing it's like that's cool good for you apple that's like the old mac windows commercials yeah yeah it's a it kind of flipping oh i'm just ready out of the box well i need to get a printer i need a monitor and mouse and keyboard yeah so what's interesting about this is not so much that when an uh, iPhone is going to Type-C. My biggest problem with this was it was legislation that caused it. 
And this is my reasoning why. This is not you're going to be your typical government overreach bad argument, because I think that's the lower common denominator argument for against this. But it's because it is, well, what if the customers of Apple thought that the lightning connector was better than type C? They do. <laughs> now they don't get that better connector. Theoretically, I don't think it's better at all because I have to yeah. like they break all the time. Um, they're like terrible, actually. But what if so right now there's that common charger directive, right? Mm -hmm. But what if let's say Google Pixel, let's say Google is like we have a better connector than USB type C, but we can't use it because of this now. That's just fundamentally. So right now I got it. You know how like the um, type C is great because it's, you know, any polarity, you flip it upside down and it still works. Mm -hmm. What if you made one that's 360 degrees? It's like a barrel jack, but has like 24 connectors in it that can all like rotate. <laughs> just theoretic, theoretical, right? Yeah, yeah. Which technically would be a better user experience because now you don't have to care about what orientation at all. It just goes in. Or even better, what if Mag Connect, which is what they use on like the higher end MacBooks and stuff, yeah, which is like a great connector. That's honestly probably the best connector out there, which is like a magnetic coupled connection that just un that way, like if you trip over the wire, it just unplugs. Like that's one thing that I think Apple really has going for them on their on their laptops. What if that was on the phone? They can't use it mm -hmm. because of this. Yeah, no, we're basically locked in with USB-C for a very long time now. Yeah, and we already complain that politicians are out of touch with basically society because <laughs> how yeah. old they are. <laughs> now we're basically telling them to tell us what connectivity we need to use between devices. That's my biggest gripe about it. The EU is faster on tech changes than the US government, but... That's not necessarily a, always a positive thing. And at the same time, it's worth noting, uh, you know, the EU said something and now the rest of the world is conforming to it. So we are, well, that's a, you and I that's aren't necessarily, we're not feeling the impacts of it, but Apple people are for sure. Because yeah. one of the biggest gripes is now they're going to have to buy a lot of replacement for their accessories that were lightning, right? Well, or don't upgrade, right? Mm -hmm. So it is the argument of a government far away making a decision and now you're being impacted and you have no representation on that. But, you know, that's <laughs> that sounds like an American argument there. <laughs> I guess Apple could make an EU-only phone. They could. They could, right? Uh, and I would not be surprised if there was lots of conversations about that. Yeah. Like how much it would cost just to run an EU-only phone. Yeah. No, no, I, I think perhaps in the future, you said barrel jack. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe the the future, the the far future, we will get a barrel jack that is literally just ground and hot, and it's all your data and it's all your power on just power and data on that. Power over or data over power. Data over power, and it's two big beefy, beefy pins. So you can put a ton of current into it. And you could charge fast, and it's high-speed data. And it doesn't matter the polarity, because you would just have polarity detection on your device. Done. Yeah. Yep. USB Type D. I like it. <laughs> Get right on that. Yep. I do feel for the Apple people, because 
Apple stuff is not cheap. And if you've bought into that ecosystem, you've bought into it literally. There's there's a lot of uh, stuff to buy for it. And Apple tends to Appleize stuff. Uh, in fact, they're already doing it with the uh, iPhone 15, where in the box, when you buy the iPhone 15, you get a USB 2.0 cable, which is limited on speed. And if you need an Apple branded USB 3.0 cable for whatever purposes you need to go faster, it's a $70 cable to buy from them. And, you know, whatever accessories you had, headphones or whatever it is that was lightning, that that just doesn't work with the 15 now. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it really is a pretty hefty shift. The good thing, though, is what you were just mentioning, Parker, about we're all in the land of USB-C now. A shift like this probably isn't going to happen again for a very long time. So, yeah, you kind of have to reset. You have to get rid of your VHSs and start going over to DVDs. <laughs> but it's probably... What about my Betamax? <laughs> my eight tracks. But this is, you know, this is probably the last time you'll have to do it for a long time. We'll see. But it does, honestly, it does stifle, you know, just progress in general. Because now there is just one standard, which might be a good thing. But as we've already seen when the Type-C connector came out, how many iterations have already been piled onto it, basically, in just a short six years? True, true. I think you could make another argument that having a big monolith like Apple forcing their own proprietary connectors also stifles progress. Sure. Not as much though, because you could on the flip side, as you could say is Apple is the one who's innovating. Sure. Just on the flip side of that. You could. Yeah. But it also means you now have camps and you have people who are stuck in those camps and they don't play nice with each other. Now you, you kind of have, in a way, you have the adult on the playground that's saying you all have to play nice together. And so we'll see what comes of it. Maybe it maybe it does stifle things. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like from a personal standpoint, I'm like, nah, let, let anyone do what they want to do. If Apple wants to start keep making proprietary connectors, go for it. But that's just, you know, that's not where we're where we're living yeah. in. And and Apple, I guarantee you, Apple ran all of the numbers on this and was like, does it make sense to make an EU phone? Does it make sense to cut off the EU? Yeah. Like they probably ran all of these things. And of course, it, it's fairly obvious what the what the end result would be. Yeah, it's clear that Apple consumers don't care about the connector because they still buy Apple devices, even though they're not Type C. They, so it's clear that Apple consumers don't care. I will, okay, so so I'm going to say yes and no on that because I, I did a little bit of research before this podcast on it. I went and found a handful of articles and I saw in general about equal amount of articles being like, yay, we're finally you know catching up with everyone. We're going to USB-C. We're finally going to get there. And I saw plenty of other articles who were like, this really sucks. Like what's wrong with the connector we already had. Now you're making us go out and buy more stuff. Thanks, Apple. Like I saw so many articles that were saying those equally. And so I don't know if I would say like all Apple people are saying, great, done, this is cool. Like I I just don't see that from my research. And and in fact, the, you know, the, the New York Times has a whole article about like, how do you handle this? What do you do? Because you you have this whole ecosystem you've built up and now it's kind of the rug got pulled out from underneath you. I think the trick on that, on those articles, is see who's funding those. Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I put one article I put in our notes is from TechCrunch and one is from the New York Times. So 
Yeah. Whoever's funding those. Well, it's who wrote the articles. But yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's one of those. I. The whole reason. So when you, we roll all this back, the whole reasoning behind the common charger directive was to reduce e-waste. So you only have to have one charger for your entire house, basically. Noble, but, you know, I have a lot of devices that require chargers that need more than 240 volt, uh, watts to charge. So Well, but, but it, was, it was supposed to be for items that are under a certain limit. So it was, you know, headphones, gaming tablets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, th- th- things of that sort. Yeah, but it's also like, Really, you only needed two different cables. Let's say you had a mixed household. So you had Apple devices and Type-C devices. And everyone else. <laughs> yeah. So you had, you really only need two cables because a USB-A 3.1 power delivery cable that goes to Type-C or Lightning works with both of these devices. Works with both camps with the same power supply. Mm-hmm. It's just two different cables. So I don't think this really solves e-waste problems as much as they wanted to. Now, back in the day when Nokia was like the jam for phones, every single phone had a different connector. And so I definitely agree that that was a big problem. Like even from Nokia, families had different connectors. It was crazy. They were trying things. Yes. Because there was no standard out there and everyone was just trying everything. Like... I found like some weird cables recently that were like had a TRS 3.5 millimeter jack that was power. And then it had like an eight pin connector with it that would like plug in the bottom of your phone. Yep. Oh, terrible. Well, and, and even Apple had that big, long 30 pin tongue connector. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With the little pinch ends on it. Uh, so this isn't the first time Apple's done a large paradigm shift on how their phones are uh, charged. Yeah. I think they have a lot more users now. How many phones have, have you had? How many phones? Yeah. And how many different types of charging? I had a Nokia brick phone, so that was one type. And then after that, I got a BlackBerry, and that was USB mini, actually. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I got a Samsung, which was USB micro. And then after that, I got a OnePlus One, and that was USB Micro. And then I went to a Pixel 2, which is USB Type-C. And then now I have a Pixel 7, which is Type-C. Yeah. So actually not a lot of phones after, shoot, that's like 20 years now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think I got my first phone around 14, 15. So yeah, 20 years now. So yeah, let us know what you all think about the Common Charger Directive. Actually, yeah, if you are an avid Apple user, are you excited about this or are you mad about this? Uh, And is this going to prevent you from getting an iPhone 15 or are you jumping full in and being like, I want the next one? Mm -hmm. Okay, so last week we talked about reverse polarity protection. That was 45 minutes of that. (laughs) So we asked everyone out in the community how y'all like to do this um, style circuit. So Tom Anderson has like an extension, I want to call it, of like just the diode shunt across the power inputs of your device. And it's basically to put a, a you know, a, a PTC or resettable fuse 
in series with your positive end before you hit the shunt. So that way your diode doesn't just immediately explode. It has some current limiting there. Right, right. Well, so if you do plug it in backwards, the diode shorts and then the fuse goes off, there's still an amount of time between when the short goes to maximum and the fuse opens where you're in, oh, crap territory, but... Yeah, but it's not terribly long. Yeah, and diodes are robust. Yeah. And then he also uses an MOV across the inputs to basically shunt any high voltage, over voltage. Yeah, Tom was saying that this is basically a, like the whole kit and caboodle input. Yeah. So this gives you the reverse polarity protection. It gives you fusing and it gives you over voltage. Yeah. And those components aren't that expensive. PTCs tend to be kind of pricey. Yeah. But compared to like a P-channel reverse protection FET and the diodes you need for that to basically copy this circuit, the functionality, it's not too bad. It's comparable. Yeah. The one point that Tom was making that's a good point is the shunt diode needs to be, it needs to have a forward voltage that's different than the forward voltage that would be in any of the ICs that's protecting. Because if, if it has a higher forward voltage than any of the ICs, then the ICs become your protection diode as opposed to your protection diode. So that's yeah, why yeah, yeah, yeah. a shock key specifically is chosen such that it has a lower. In other words, if a short happens, the shock key, I'm using air quotes, wins. And it's the one <laughs> that shorts as opposed to the ESD diodes inside of whatever your ICs are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like ICs. Yeah. yeah. That's actually a good point. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a mistake that's commonly made. Just throw any diode on it. Well, you honestly don't really know what's in half of those ICs, so you have to pick a shot key that is just lower. You can expect standard diode drops from the inputs on ICs, mm-hmm. so pick something less than that. Yeah, and then there was mentioning of like the PFET reverse protection. Once you start ramping up current, it might not be the best because of the RS on drop across the FET. You can paralyze the FETs, or that's actually probably where like using the uh, the fuse with the shocky diode shunt is probably the best option at higher currents because you can just replace the resettable fuse with just like a glass fuse at that point where you get really crazy currents uh, and those are you know glass fuses are pretty inexpensive like a five millimeter fuse so oh yeah yeah for the yeah and they're user changeable mm-hmm. which is which is kind of nice yeah oh fuses that are soldered on the board drive me insane Oh, I hate them. Yeah. Like PTCs that are resettable, totally fine with them. But soldered on fuses drive me. How many fuses I've like soldered jumpers around in my day is uncountable. (laughs) A soldered on fuse is purely there for safety. And that's it. Not for the functionality of the device. Yeah. It's because they had to have one. Yeah, they had to have it. So it's safety. And I didn't want to spend any more money past that. Correct. Which is fine, but it also makes your device e-waste really quickly. It bricks it real fast if there's an issue. Yep. What's this about smart diodes? So uh, I think it was Metacolin. Because diodes are typically like the stupidest device semiconductor out there. (laughs) 
Yeah. In terms of, I think, uh, let me see here. Is it? Yeah. Meta Colin from the Slack channel pointed out that if you wanted to get like the fanciest in this, there's actually devices called smart diodes that emulate ideal diodes specifically for reverse polarity. So they have a sharp knee. Well, they have a sharp knee and they actually, in the data sheet, if you look at the applications, they call out, or I shouldn't say application, features, they call out lower power dissipation than a shot key diode or a PFET solution. Oh, yeah. And on top of that, they don't have to be ground referenced. So they, they basically act like an inline reverse polarity protection device. And an example of one is an LM74610. And so if you want to get as fancy as possible, this might be one of those options. So, you know, between what we mentioned in the last episode and this one, we've kind of walked up the hierarchy of what you can do. And I would say smart diodes. I haven't looked at the price, but just given the fact that it's an IC that you have to throw on the board, I'm guessing this is the most expensive solution out of all of these. Let's see. Mauser wants... Is it is it pricey? It's 247 in singles. Dollar 18 in quant. You see, a PFET and a resistor cap is going to be cheap. And that $2 something is probably closer to Tom Anderson's solution, but you don't get the over-voltage protection like Tom does, and you don't get yeah. resettable fuse kind of. So I don't, I don't know if these smart diodes act can act as a fuse, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe they have an upper limit that you can set. So I haven't looked too much into them. So mainly is the main thing with these smart diodes is they are designed to meet certain specifications for automotive. Like they're calling out, it meets ISO standard, blah, 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 blah. Yep. So that is why you would use one of these go, Oh, I need to meet ISO seven, six, three, seven. Thank you. Data sheet. Yep. And Oh, if I do this application diagram, my device will hit that, that ISO certification qualification qualification that's the good word for it yeah yeah and actually something i've learned from surprisingly in the aerospace industry if you see part numbers and they have q at the end of them like this one if you look up mm -hmm. lm74610-q1 that typically means that they're automotive grade which is aec q dash mm -hmm. 100 q 100 200 blah blah yeah. blah and, and the, those numbers in there, the actual, the, the numbers represent what part of the car they're rated for. Interesting. So some things are automotive rated for just in the dash. Some of them are automotive rated for powertrain. Some of them are automotive. So they have different, you know, grades basically to them. But you typically, if you see a Q somewhere in a part number, it's at least some form rated for automotive. And... What's interesting is if you look up what that means, it means a lot and it doesn't mean a lot at the same time. What it typically means is you have better traceability and it means that there's a higher likelihood that your parts were manufactured in the same place. Whereas if you don't have automotive, I'm not going to say it's a grab bag, but you just don't have the traceability to be able to determine that. There's also a higher likelihood that they were screened and qualified to higher testing standards. So I've found that that's one, that's one easy way as a designer to pull some levers to get higher reliability out of your product without spending a ton more. If you want to feel a little bit better about the reliability of your product, 
just change your resistors and your caps and your diodes and your transistors to automotive grade ones because you have traceability and most of the lots are at least tested to something or you can look and they have quality data on their stuff. If it doesn't have that automotive stamp on it, good luck finding reliability data on your parts. That's a good point. All right, do you want to spend the last four minutes complaining about Slack, the chat program? Oh, hell yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Actually, I, I Parker can complain here because I haven't experienced this yet, but I'm interested in hearing what he has to say. I am so glad we are moving the community off of Slack. That's why I'm and even more so now. So our community Slack hasn't been rolled out to this new interface that Slack has just rolled out. Our internal chat for Macrofab this morning got rolled out. And it is the most user-unfriendly experience ever in a chat. Pro- well, maybe not ever in a chat program I've I've ever had. The wound is fresh with Parker right now. Oh, yeah. It's it's only 12 years old. Oh, not 12 years old. 12 hours old now. <laughs> so, so, okay. So what has happened to Slack? So Slack, they reorganized a lot of where channels go and how stuff gets nested. The best way I can explain it is remember when Windows 11 came out and now everything that you used to just click right click with the mouse and you could just select like copy or paste or like open with notepad plus plus all that got shuffled into another click you had to click through a secondary one a secondary menu that you had to access through the right click menu yeah they did that and they looked at that right click for windows 11 and were like that's awesome. Great idea. We should make our entire Slack experience like this now. Oh, you know, okay. The one in Windows 11 that killed me is if I want to rename a file, I used to right click and click rename. Rename? And now rename is in a secondary menu from right click. So it's actually faster to do the slow double click on a file to be able to rename it than it is to right-click and get to where it was before. It's one less click. You're right. You're right, it is, but it's still like... Because if you, in Windows 11, to rename with the context menu, it's right-click, left-click on net more, and then left-click on rename. Whereas... You're right. You can do a slow left-click yeah. twice on it, and that's only two clicks. And, and, and See how stupid that is. Like, Why? Like, what was wrong with it before? Why did that need to get moved? Yeah, I... Like, what... Okay, so the the real question is, what did it get replaced with? Oh, so, like... And I, it, I don't think it got replaced with anything. It just got moved. It just got moved around. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so Slack did that, basically. Slack did similar stuff. And so, like, to go... So, it used to be, like, you just had a list of all your channels you were in. And so you would see, oh, this channel has an update or a new post. So you go just click on it. Now it's like hidden where like if any channel has an update, whatever channel you're in is like the big icon and it just has one dot next to it. So you don't even know how many channels have updates. You just know one does. And it could be even the one that you're in now, but you don't know that. So you have to click it and then you see your whole list of channels and which ones have been updated. Or have updates. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me why they would do that. Well, okay. So, so someone at Slack, I don't remember who it was, mentioned that they want to, they wanted to make Slack 
waste people's time less. I'm paraphrasing pretty hard there. But basically, they wanted people to not just stare at Slack in the workplace all day long. So maybe they, by making it a little bit more difficult, people would oh, do that less. They are because people are going to move it off of Slack to Teams or something <laughs> like that. They're going to just abandon it. Yeah, so they'll look at Slack less. So it's just bad user interfaces. Is, is Like everything's the same, just more difficult to use. Yes, and more white space. So the chat, that's so funny when they said that, like it should take up less space on your desktop then. Hmm. If you want people to look at less, it should be smaller, right? Or, well, I think they're going with more space, less time. I guess. is The argument, let's just put it that way. You spend less time there. But it takes up more of my space, so I end up looking at it more now. And like the themes. Did they just expand everything and move things apart? Yeah, everything's just more white space. Hmm, that's weird. And so you have to make it whiter so you have the same functionality. And they have this new themes thing. Which is like, I don't know who thought gradients should come back in applications. <laughs> you can actually see it in that screenshot that you posted, but it doesn't. So that's someone putting a custom theme on it. Stock out of the box. It's like the slack colors of that gradient. Huh. And so it goes from like green to orange or something like that across the entire like color bar there. Yeah. And it's like the most visual grabbing thing and you just can't stop staring at it because it just, the colors just go all crazy. So it's like, it's wasting more of your time because it keeps grabbing your attention. So I went with like, try to make it as Dull. least obvious as possible. So it's just like, everything's gray. Everything's gray. Yeah. <laughs> Gr but gray gradient. <laughs> no, no. You can actually mess with this. Oh, you can make it just flat. You can mess with the settings because you, it's like combining two of the colors. It doesn't tell you this. I had to play around with it, but you can get away with the gradient by setting two of the colors, like the same color. Uh, and then it gets rid of that gradient. The gradient's still there. It's just going from one color to the same color. Yeah. Same color. So the gradient doesn't yeah. show up, but man, that gradient is like the, that's the second worst thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the most <laughs> obvious of the change, but man, it was like, I made this neutral theme and just, put it in Slack because you can like share themes in Slack and everyone's just like, thank you. Cause the, the defaults were just terrible. You're just obnoxious. Obnoxious. Yeah. So it begs the question, why? Like what was so wrong and broken with Slack before that they needed to do this? So they're saying that they want people to spend less time working on it or something like, or using it or whatever, which sounds like the exact opposite. You want people to use your product more. You want it to be, more indispensable to their workflow. Not right now. It's a hindrance. Like it takes me longer to do work in Slack. Now that's just hmm. how it is now, which sucks. And I, I think why, so you have a team of developers on these. This is why, like not exactly why windows 11 changed so much. I think windows 11, though, were trying a lot of stuff and it just didn't really work out. But what happens is you have a whole bunch of developers and you have a, some UX developers and Slack has gotten to the point where it's a pretty mature product, right? Yeah, sure. So you either take your developers and you, there's, th there's three options, right? You either take all your developers and you keep innovating and doing new things. Either you build new, a different product or you add new things to your product. Like they added like the huddle thing, which was like short term 
messaging with voice and video, like Google Hangouts or Teams. <laughs> when they added that, I'm like, oh, that's actually a great feature. Now I don't have to go make a Google Calendar invite to have a meeting with people that are remote. I can just click huddle in our Slack channel. Perfect. That was actually a great feature ad. But you that that's the whole thing is you either have to keep doing that or second thing is all you have to get rid of your developers because you they're not doing anything, right? And they're expensive as hell. You just need developers to maintain, right? You still need developers to fix bugs, maintain, that kind of stuff. Or three, you do what Slack just did and then just change your product over and over and over again, trying to look for ways. <laughs> just nuke it. <laughs> well, you're trying to look at ways to gain market share, right? And so, or just keep your developers there doing busy work. That's not busy. Busy work is maintaining stuff. Redevelop, like this probably was a substantial lift to make this change. And like, because what's what's eating their market share? Programs like Discord, right? Teams. Teams is eating their market share. So they're looking at ways to basically how to like so refreshing the GUI interface will bring more eyeballs to it or or maybe there was some people complaining about we spend too much time in actually in Slack so let's make Slack less useful so you don't use it as much that doesn't make any sense to me but whatever that's interesting that a product dude would say that <laughs> or product person uh, I should say and I, I, th I think it was more like when you use Slack you want it to be very effective and not just a time sink or time waste. So you always want to think of Slack as like the thing that's helping me accomplish my goals. Yeah, it, it does not do that now. That sucks. It's like the exact opposite for everyone I've talked to. It's, it actively works against you. It actively works against you like Windows 11 right context menu. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where you literally change something you've been doing for uh, over a decade or two. Yeah. Because they just made it one more click harder. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's literally like we're looking at alternatives to get rid of it because this is that frustrating now for the power users of Slack and our company. Oh, okay. I've got another one really quick. Sorry. On Windows 11, that just freaking grinds my gears because Windows 10 had this, but Windows 11 got rid of it for no freaking reason whatsoever. So the, the audio settings in the bottom right, you know how it has the little speaker icon? Mm -hmm. In Windows 10, you could click on that and it would just in that little window, it would bring up a list of your audio sources. Yep. And you could just click on whichever one you wanted, and that was now your audio source. Yeah. Windows 11 got rid of that, where you have to right-click on it. You have to go to audio settings. You have to bring up a window. Then there's a pull-down thing that you can go to. Wait, they got rid of the left-click, and then there's, like, the list? Yeah. Oh, my God. Why they get... That was, like, one of the best things they added to 10. And they got rid of it. And now you have to right-click on it. You have to go to the settings, and then you can select things from a pull-down list or buttons and things. So, like, mm. why? That was excellent. That and, and look, me and Parker are guys that we switch our audio sources very regularly because we do audio things. So and that was excellent. Why get rid of that? Don't know. They did. Yeah. But, yeah, if Slack is doing crap like that, it's just... Why? So I do think... So the reason why is the only way they can innovate in their space or what they think they can innovate is by changing the interface to 
gain more market share. That's why this happens. Maybe. That's why Windows 11 happened. I mean, Windows 11 probably under the hood, they fixed a lot of underlying issues with, you know, 10. But you also have all you, your GUI guys and gals that need to have work too. So they play around with that stuff and they change it. It's like, it's one of those, did they like the right click menu thing in Windows 11? Same thing with the Slack thing. I don't know if they actually even like went to users and let them use it and been like, is this a good idea or not? <laughs> do you like this? No, not even just do you like it. Like what they should do is run metrics, right? They should have a B test. Same thing with the windows 11 stuff that we don't like a B tested it with users and have it record clicks, have it record how long it takes people to change settings, that kind of stuff. All those metrics. Yeah. Record people's faces when they first use it and see how much they furrow their brow and go, ugh. <laughs> I, I like it how on my laptop at work, I've told it no to Windows 11 so many times, it refuses to update to Windows 11 now. Oh, it can't. Yeah, no, like it just says it won't, because now our policy is to, we're moving everyone to 11. Okay. And I'm like, okay, fine, it's, company policy mine will go to 11 as well it won't let me go to 11 <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i don't know what i'm gonna do about that yet it might be like have to wipe the computer reinstall 10 and then have it upgraded 11 yeah maybe because <laughs> it, it literally will not let me go to 11 yet that's awesome and i'm like no i want it it goes oh install this tool through Bing for some reason it's like the pc health check thing install that and he goes we can't upgrade you to Windows 11 because of user preferences. And I'm like, what user preferences? Oh, they're not going to tell you. No. Apparently, this is a, a common problem, though. It's like everyone needs to upgrade 11 because 10 is being sunset on security. Yeah. And everyone's like, and then Windows 10 won't upgrade if you click no too many times, apparently. It just won't. It will not. That's funny. Yeah, it's it's funny. <laughs> I, I ran into the problem where I was one of the first adopters of 11 and I got it. I was like, cool, new windows. That'll be great. And then I got it and I was like, this sucks. And it was like, do you want to go back to windows 10? I was like, yeah, I do. And it's like, we will let you go back to windows 10 for 30 days. And then you have to go back to 11. And it was, so it, it downgrades and then re upgrades you. That is terrible. It allows you to go down for a short period of time. Yeah, that's terrible. And then it forced you to go back up. Yeah. What? Why? Exactly. Why? Why even let you go back down? You know, that doesn't make any sense. Oh. <laughs> it was, yeah. Eventually, I was just like, well, like this is me now. I guess I got to be an 11 <laughs> this guy. This is me now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's end this thing. Yeah, yeah. We've been going for a while. I'm getting salty. Yeah. I'm getting salty out of these. I'm getting salty at bad product decisions. That just don't make any sense. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our podcast and sitting through our rants about software that just changes randomly and screws up your workflows. 
If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack for like the next two weeks or so.